You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McCuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is the final episode, not of the podcast as a whole, but uh, of the ones that we recorded at Edinburgh last year in Black Medicine uh, under the auspices of the PBH Free Fringe. This is Jenna Friedman. I mean, dry as sand, I've said on the blurb, and I don't know if that begins to to cover it. Her show was really, really funny. Just someone who can take an idea and wring all of the comedy out of it. (laughs) I mean that in a positive way, so that you're left with the comedy, not that the comedy's been wrung out. Um, So uh, this is Jenna. Let's let's get stuck in. Oh, you're right. The mic is weird. Okay. Yeah, it's pretty strange, right? It's a weird little uh, uh, pointy job. Have a Hi, seat. guys. Would you like a drink? Can we get you some water? Um, I'm okay. Okay. Actually, yeah. I, I will uh, drink most of that throughout the proceedings. Thank you for coming. It's the end of the festival. You've got one show left tomorrow? I have one show tomorrow, and then I'm hosting some weird web thing tonight at a biscuit factory in Leith from, like... 1am to 4am. That is the quintessential Edinburgh experience. I'm do, doing some midnight gig from a, yeah. a biscuit factory. Yeah, it's going to be weird. It's fun. It's like this weird web thing that's going to air in the US that nobody will know anything about because American comics and people don't know anything about anyone else. So, Okay. It'll be really exciting. <laughs> it's difficult to tell how dry you're being about it because oh. I've seen your hour and I've spoke to you a tiny bit personally and I don't know whether like whether that level of you going it's going to be great is you going tongue in cheek or whether it's you going it's genuinely going to be great and I, this is how I speak I think you know we jury's still out I don't know if it matters you know <laughs> um how has your run gone? You've only been here for the last week. Two weeks. Two yeah, weeks, two it's weeks. been really cool. I've never done this before. I actually, it's been really, like I basically, the first week I got here, I kind of like was still writing the show and now I finally have it. So if you guys come tomorrow, you'll see a real show. Uh, <laughs> but in America, it's very different, like uh, how we build hours and we don't really do the show thing that you guys do over here. Yes. So it has been really interesting, um, but in a good way. It's been really cool. And is this your first time at the Edinburgh Festival? I did the Free Fringe about four years ago. Okay. And which... I just did a bunch of random shows, like 10-minute spots. Okay. And this is, like, this is like my first time actually doing an hour anywhere because I um, – well, I guess we'll get into it because that's what the show's about. But yeah. 
That's it. We can get into it now. Yeah, I guess that I can. can be really organic about how I. No, I just uh, I was behind the scenes for so long, and this is like my first time kind of putting myself out there. Sure. And doing an hour. How so. long have you been doing uh, stand up for? In t- like since, since your first ever. Since two thousand and six. Okay. And before that, you were producing already? No, before that, that, I was doing, like, improv and sketch in Chicago. Okay. So, yeah, I got into comedy through, like, a thesis, like, my senior thesis in college. I wrote a paper about comedy. It's super nerdy, but... um, What was the paper? What was the title? It was about the political economy of Chicago's improv comedy scene. And I love it. <laughs> Go on. This, mate, honestly, listeners to this podcast write to me frequently and tell me about their similarly nerdy projects. It's so and nerdy, but... So, someone in the audience there is waving a formerly improv Olympic. Improv Olympic. Olympic. Oh, okay. I.O. You mean, oh, that's so insider. Wow. <laughs> um, yeah, it was basically about, like, how the scene is pretty much white. And, um... But how, like, it was, like, kind of my college advisor, I went to school, I went to Northwestern, and my advisor was, like, this feminist Marxist who's, like, it's not just about gender, it's, like, race, class, and gender and the political economy. So I spent a year there, I just, like, I had no idea about comedy, and uh, I wanted to do a paper on, like, female stand-ups, because it, in our school, you just spend your senior year as like an anthro major writing a thesis. So you just like live in a community for a year. And Chicago at the time didn't really have a huge stand up scene, but then the improv scene was pretty big. So this is so boring, but okay. Um, I went up to, I was like living downtown my senior year with friends and like I went up to Improv Olympic having no idea what it was. And I was like, Hey, can I like come and pay? you know, like, whatever, a month to just see all the shows to write about them. And they were like, if you are a student, you can see all the shows for free. And then it's like, I basically improv like this gateway drug to comedy. And I just like, my first time on stage, like writing, directing and acting at the same time, I was like, boom, this is it. Amazing. Yeah. So you came to it, you were, you were studying it and got sucked in. Yeah, totally. I went like native. You went native. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. Sorry. In, sorry, I will also do those inverted commas. Over oh, that, yeah. Oh, yeah. Potentially racially charged term. Oh, yeah, totally. Oh, right. I didn't even think about that. Jesus. Okay. <laughs> Good thing we're not recording. So, <laughs> so you, were, you were examining it from the point of view intellectually, or when you said you started doing it, what, did the thesis yeah. go out the window and you just started no, enjoying it? No, I was examining it for so long, and then um, my paper came out, and Sharna Halpern, like, canceled. I was on a Herald team, and I got cut because my paper was, it wasn't even, like, incendiary, but it was, like, looking at, any any institution you examine under a microscope, you're going to find flaws. And so I just kind of like examined it in this way because it's like an interesting place. It's like a school, but a bar and a theater and like uh, and I didn't I had one paragraph about like sexual harassment in the workplace. And like it wasn't incendiary at all. But I do remember it was really funny. I was actually interning during Baby Wants Candy, which is a show here. Yeah. And um, this male professor, I guess I'm calling him, he's just like a drunk improv guy, teacher, <laughs> he taught a class. Is that the, oh, the professor that's like an intern? I just like- said professor because I'm being a weirdo, but okay, um, he just like came up and like put his hand on my lower back and he was like, like, does your hair naturally flip like that? And I remember I was like reading like Barbara, I think it was like the economic emergence of women, like the chapter on like... <laughs> It was like the chapter on sexual harassment in the workplace, and I was like, oh, this is a funny anecdote. And so that got in, but I, all the names, like, I didn't use anybody's names, but the Sharna Halpern read that and then, like, canceled my show, and I got blacklisted, and that's pretty much how I got to stand up. No way. Yeah. So you got fished into the uh, the improv community and then rejected from it. Yeah. For the same, like, for your anthropological, yes. for the same reason, effectively. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So then when you went into 
stand-up, talk to me about that. You kind of, like, did you go, well, that's it, I'm washing my hands with improv. I loved improv, and I still do, but improv is so cool, just... I mean, I never, I, I don't have that like performer bone in my body. And like you're on stage playing all these different characters. And Chicago's improv scene is really special because it's like you yes and, and then you have to make your partner look good. And it's just like these really like basic rules, but like it gives you so much freedom. Like they don't have like the, if you're like improv nerds, which you all look like you are, they don't really have like the game. Like it's not, it's not like short form and it's not as restrictive as other improv places. It's really just like you get a suggestion and you go for 30 minutes and like, it just so it really taught me like my voice as a stand up. Like I remember playing all sorts of different characters of different ages and whatever, but like they all had this like pathological fear of AIDS. And so like <laughs> my stand up persona just came from like being on stage without a script and like finding out like who you are because of your natural reactions, no matter who you are playing. Yes. Um, That's an incredibly organic way to do it as well because you're not contriving what you think is supposed to be your persona. No, you're just like reacting. And like you, I got really good because like in Chicago you could do improv like five nights a week or like you could just do – you get so much stage time. And like for young comics, that's like the one thing you need. It's just stage time. But I remember like in our improv class, we'd go to these like improv jams where you just like show up and like you improvise with strangers. And like I remember like there was like this 55-year-old guy who would – like drive in from this suburb called Peoria, Illinois, like every weekend his like go-to improv move was just like to just like grab your leg and like (laughs) it's not funny but you have this like you're 23 you're like a girl like maybe the only one on stage and then like rear friend Ronnie like Ronnie's gonna be the scene so he's gonna grab my leg and I have to make it look totally natural and normal so like it makes you such a good like team player because you're just like with all these like Weird people just making something out of nothing, and you've got to have their back. That's the and job. You've got to you, have you their back. Go, you can't go. No, you can't. Block yeah, you can't the make them look bad. Oh yeah. So God. if like Ronnie is like touching your ass or like humping your leg, you're like, oh, Ronnie. Like, <laughs> you know, he's a Vietnam vet. You just like make something funny up. I know that wasn't funny, but um, <laughs> now my stand-up comes in and it's like delete, cut, cut, because it's you know. Anyway. Go on, go on, just, just follow that thought for a second. Oh, what, really? What well, the thought delete? was like, you know, it was like a joke on PTSD, which is like not politically correct. And so it's not, you I know. I see what you mean. You, so you're having the same instincts as an improviser, but what, as a, as a stand-up, you need to be more careful about the things because the, yeah, because you're recorded not recorded in a way that. Yeah, it could be recorded. But also, <laughs> I mean, so my stand-up, like it is like, you know, it's on the line. I like to do stuff, not even for shock value, but just like to talk about stuff that people aren't talking about because I think that maybe there's like a masochistic tendency to do that. But it's been interesting being here because like my first week I had so many reviewers come in and like I've never been in that kind of a fishbowl with like your, you know, your, your, I, I, I thought it'd be funny to talk about Israel in Europe. Okay. And, uh, it's not that funny. <laughs> okay. And is this something that several, were you reading the reviews and kind of getting what oh, they were Oh, pregame. That's how I pregame for my shows. I'm <laughs> like reading the reviews like an idiot. Really? You would. Oh yeah. I'm like, she says I need to slow it down a little bit. It's like having. Like literally pre, like before you go on. Yeah. Like how pregame are we talking? A little like, bit, just like right before I go on. If I'm like, cigarette out, if I have some time out, to kill. Read a two star or a five star or something, and go right there. We go. This They're is all it. three and four, and that's fine. But I'd rather get like the one star. You know, I'd rather be polarizing as opposed to like, you know, like it's mm. the worst. Three stars is the worst. It's like someone going, yeah, yeah. But it's okay. No, it's been cool. I just, I mean, I am Jewish, and so I have this like neurotic Jewish mother who's like hypercritical. So it just feels like a warm hug every review I read. <laughs> 
that's like, you need to slow it down or like, you know, be more confident. I'm like, okay, mom. (laughs) (laughs) And is your mom going to read your reviews? No, she's like, I don't want anything to do with, yeah, no, they're great. My parents are great now, but like I, we just kind of, it's like a, it's like the thing we don't really talk about. Okay. Mm, what I do. <laughs> okay. And that, is that for a reason? Has it become that way or is it just... No, they're of- very supportive now, scarily so. When I first started doing comedy, my mom literally was like, I'd rather you be gay because like, at least that's something you can't control. Um, <laughs> not even That's like not even a joke. Um, they were really scared for me because like, they're just like, none of, no one in my family is an artist. So it just scared them a lot. And I think they started to turn around when like, I got a writing job in New York and was able to pay my rent for the first time. Um, but yeah, I think any parent who like doesn't know what it is to be an artist is like scared for their kid because it's just like it's tough, you know. Mm, mm. So, something I've noticed from I've read of, I, I stay out of the uh, the world of reviews. I stopped reading them a few years ago, and it's so great. But whenever I'm having someone on the show, I'll read a couple of them. And a, a, one of the lines that a lot of people quoted was your uh, the jeans line. And I'm just for people that haven't seen your show, oh. aren't familiar with your work. Yeah, so many jokes were in those reviews. They fun. give them all away, man. It's uh, yeah. yeah, that's a, that's a big problem over here. But just for the just for the tell uh, us a joke. <laughs> yeah, well, no, not not uh, not exactly tell us a joke, but um, just for people here who aren't familiar, people listening who aren't familiar with your stuff, I don't want to butcher that uh, jeans joke by repeating it. Oh, you want me to repeat? Yeah, it? just to, just so we get a sense oh. of the sort of thing we're talking. You know, about. it's not of... even like it was such like a throwaway line. It, it's something I haven't even. It wasn't even in my set a while ago. I just like I think it's like I'm getting older in the show. So I'll start with the show title because it's long-winded, but the show title is American Cunt. It came out of the fact that, like, my friends, like, there are 3,000 shows of The Fringe. Like, you need you need a title that, like, resonates, and I couldn't think of one. So then I was like, what's the worst thing I could call it? And that <laughs> is how... Which is a fascinating instinct, let's but be then fair. But yeah. it's like, and I didn't have a set, and I didn't have a show because, again, it's, like, not in the culture in the States, and I, I haven't even been a touring comic for the past five years because I've been, like, behind the scenes. So the show came out of the idea of, like, what does American cunt mean? I guess it's, like, a show about, like, you know, it's political, it's about women, it's blah, blah, blah. So then the the jeans joke just came out of that idea of, like, owning, like, I'm 32 now and, like, owning what I look like and my sexuality. And, like, so many female comics will be, like, self-deprecating or, like, talk about their weight or something, which is totally fine to do. But I just wanted to, to go the opposite way. So the joke is like, I feel great. I still fit into my 9-11 jeans. Like, never forget. (laughs) You know, and then I like sprinkled like it. I was like, you know, these aren't those. um, These are from like the London bombings. Just for like a British crowd. How did that go down? You know, way better than in this room. Yeah. Um, (laughs) That's okay. We're not performing the stuff now. We're analyzing it. We're not performing, you guys. No judgment. (laughs) It's not like this is being taped, okay? (laughs) It's just us connecting like humans. Did you, so it worked at the, the seven Oh seven yeah, no, it's been great. And it's more just the idea of like, which I don't talk about it in the show because it's not yet funny and I felt a little bit of pressure to be funny during the show. But I do like the idea of like, you know, maybe it's more of a female thing, but now it's like becoming a male thing, but like feeling good based on how you look and like something like 9-11, which is like so tragic and dark, but like remembering like you fit into like your skinny jeans and like the most, like the darkest hour of like American recent history. There's something like, kind of perversely funny to me about that sure which i don't talk about in the show but that's like the why it's why it still makes me laugh just the idea of like that like in like the darkest hour you can find something either shallow or light to like hold on to so that you don't descend into the darkness (laughs) that idea that idea of you finding things perversely funny i think that's a scene that kind of runs through your work you're tackling big difficult topics yeah i finally israel the joke is finally working (laughs) 
It's finally working, you guys. It's finally funny, the whole Israel-Palestine thing. It's finally hilarious. <laughs> what, do you, what do you think that, that instinct is on your part? What is it about you that wants to, about you, about your internal life, that wants to make those sorts of jokes as opposed to safer jokes? What is it that you're enjoying? In, yeah, in- I think it's not even like the, like calling it a joke is like, it almost like dilutes what, I don't know. Like I'm trying to just like get people to think on a level. And I know that sounds like so asinine, but that was what you were going for, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yep. The asinineness. I mean, I don't know. Like I wrote this screenplay recently that we're going to produce and somebody who did like it was like, why did you write this? And no one, no one had ever asked me that. And I was like, I guess I want people to feel like less alone, but also sad. And that, <laughs> that's definitely the thesis to the film, which is like basically like a morbid lullaby to like people dating in New York. It's just like this love letter. It's a very grounded romantic comedy about two people who connect. She's a, medical examiner with trust issues and he is a really nice guy who kills people but it's really just about like like it's not about like the serial killers it's about like what you're willing to put up with when you meet someone you love and so that was like that was a film which hopefully will get made you know we'll see but then with the stand up I think it's a combination of that and just the idea of like I can't weigh in on Israel-Palestine, and I don't want to, you know, but there are, like, things surrounding it that I feel like are hypocritical, and those are the things I kind of want to, like, prod people at or, like, explode. So it's, like, and and I, that's part of, like, you know, like, being at The Daily Show has, like, inspired that. Um, I feel like I could, it would probably behoove me to be more careful about it, but, like, I just like the idea of exploding hypocrisy on left and right. Like, you know, I think that's, like, one thing as, like, humans that, like, you know, we can all relate to no matter where we, where we are in the political spectrum, like just the idea of like hypocrisy. And like, I know I'm ranting, but one thing that I felt that was really interesting, um, when I found out that John was leaving, I was shooting a piece in, uh, Florida with a gun nut. And, um, even he was sad that like when we all, the news broke and even he was sad that like John was leaving the daily show. And it was so cool because it's like, if you're like kind of like a, center left like political comedian who's very like outspoken against like you know guns and then you have this like right wing gun nut being like man I'm gonna be I'm sad to see that guy go I'm like that's that's, that's it real, that's a genuine measure of success yeah. of, like, of, your, of having made a mark yeah and I think one of the things he does like better than anyone is really just like prod hypocrisy mm-hmm. so you know that that was like kind of like where, where like the direction I'm trying to push my comedy in um, but yeah I don't know did you bring when you started working with the Daily Show? Did you bring that attitude with you? Like, who were you? Who was your personality amongst the other people working on Daily Show? Were you known for the sorts of qualities that we're talking about here? So I uh, worked. Uh, I just left, by the way. I left when John left, but I worked as a field producer, which is like we write and direct the segments with the correspondents. And I had made a web series that was like a very dark comedic web series. That's an inspiration for the film that I'm about to hopefully shoot. Um, but it was like, like dark comedy. It was, it was like a rom-com. It wasn't political. It was the same kind of premise as a film. Um, and so they hired me as a comedian and the other guys that they'd hired prior to me were more like filmmakers. Um, so I think that was one of the things I added was just like being able to like write a hard joke. Um, so, but it wasn't like, I mean, I was political. I, the first kind of like passion project that I did after college was like, I, I wrote this, um, play that was like a parody of this doll company we have in the states called american girl dolls which you guys don't have here but it's kind of like barbie but they're these dolls with like 
that started out as these historical characters with their own little books and they were like to teach little girls about like American history. And then Mattel bought it and it became this like huge corporation. And uh, it it was like hilarious. Like they had like one black doll in the collection and she was like a runaway slave. And then like it was really bad. And then the company had like a store in Chicago where they had like this live show that was like a sales pitch for every single doll that I parodied. My play parodied that. Um, they stopped running the show because the New York Times wrote a story about how like every like 12 year old girl in the show protesting child labor like she herself was being exploited doing 22 shows a week non-union so the whole thing was like beautifully hypocritical and my play was a satire with like refugee girls from every continent it was like a very dark comedy and very political so how, that, how old were you when you wrote that? 23 okay gotcha so I did that and then like moved to New York bartended did stand up uh, ended up getting a writing job for Letterman. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then a year later, ended up at The Daily Show. But I had like a political streak prior to The Daily Show. Okay. Just to, just to, in terms of the terminology, you said writing a hard joke. What is, what is that? What do you mean by I that? I think it's like a setup and a punchline. It's like a hard, it's like, I don't know. Like I, I've never thought, like I'm like, I'm not funny. I just work really hard. And like, <laughs> um, or like I f- I've always felt like I've had to arm myself with like hard punchlines. <laughs> yes. Because okay. like maybe in my 20s, I was like, I'm not likable. So the punchline really has to like hit hard. Um, I don't know. Like that's, I don't think like the 9-11 jeans, I could, I'm trying to think of like a punchline that's like a hard punchline. I mean, it's like the whole, like my show has a lot of like hard punchlines. Yeah. But and is that, that is that that's kind of that you bring that to writing for a show from having been a comedian because I guess as a comedian yourself you it's not just a case of like I'll turn this in because someone else has to say it you know that it can't just be something like if that's if a hard joke is one with a punchline then presumably a soft joke is like a sort of a funny idea that doesn't necessarily get a oh I don't know maybe like but I I mean as you know there's so many types of comedy so like. Some comedians are like, I mean, there's like storytelling. Some people are just so likable, like they can, their their just likability is like infectious. I don't know, like I like uh, I always just kind of came from the school of just like like set up punchline. Mm-hmm. But that's also, I don't know, I think like I try to do a combination of that. Like in this show, it's a little bit more set up punchliney, but I also do kind of like I do storytelling type stuff. I know I always felt like a hard joke is basically like a like a tweet that gets retweeted a lot. Like that to me yes, is like okay. a yeah. Like a hard joke, yeah. So this is Jenna. Thank you so much to her for coming on to the show. Um, It's a very interesting experience talking to her because she is very measured in what she says. And I think, as you'll hear, she has been through a fair bit of criticism, I think, when you're outspoken uh, and when you are prepared to to kind of delve into some of the blacker areas of satire and some of the the things that can uh, offend people with your comedy, then I think that uh, you certainly have noticed, I've noticed this amongst American guests, probably more than UK based comics. Um, But now there is such a volume of stuff that, you know, one comment on a blog or someone blogs about a gig they saw uh, and things can really balloon. So um, I, I really, I'm really grateful that she was as candid as she was. Uh, and I think it must be very difficult to find yourself in that position where, you know, comedy is so much about uh, being free and being uh, off the leash and just saying the unsayable. Certainly, I mean, even if you're not a comedian who says the unsayable, then certainly just to be a creative person, you need to give yourself free reign to to spiel, to ramble, to to let it all out. 
And it must be very, very difficult uh, for people who are in the public eye or who comment on issues in the public eye before you even get into the the, the scope or the, the, before you get into the whole question of when you are deliberately trying to tread a, a boundary of taste. Uh, it must be incredibly difficult. So thank you to, to Jenna for coming on. Thanks to you for downloading it. Um, I will very briefly tell you those dates again. I try and do this as quickly as possible now, and this time I mean it. Uh, the tour starts on the 4th of March at the Glee Club in Birmingham, and then over the next month and a half, I will be at Just the Tonic Nottingham, Outside the Box Kingston, the Old Fire Station Windsor, the Horth Theatre in Crawley, Brilliant, brilliant excess malarkey in Manchester. The Wardrobe in Bristol. Joker Comedy Club in Southend. The Gulbenkian in Canterbury. The West End Centre in Aldershot. The Old Town Hall in Hemel Hempstead. The Stables in Milton Keynes. Ring of Bells at the Bath Comedy Festival. The Bicycle Shop Norwich. The Cookie Jar Leicester. The Cube in... No, it's not the Cube. We've changed that. It's Northampton. It's uh, Royal and Derngate in Northampton. Uh, the Arena Theatre in Wolverhampton. Three nights at Soho Theatre from the 21st to the 23rd of April. And then finishing off at Laughing Coyote at Sutton Theatres uh, on the 27th and then of course the secret Welsh festival that we don't like to name um, it occurred to me just reading through those so many of them do you think they give you an insight into the town what the local comedy club or a local theatre might be called it just made me laugh to go the wardrobe in Bristol the wardrobe has a sort of Narnia-esque quality to it the Joker in Southend like, it's a bit oi oi isn't it and um, in fact there is it's, it's not in Southend um, Nick Wilty has a club called oi oi oyster which is I want to say Barnstable but I may be wrong um, but uh, yeah, the Joker is a bit like a bit of a Joker, and uh, the stables in Milton Keynes <laughs> reminds me of Alan Partridge in his autobiography, trying to decide what to call his house. That's worth, definitely worth digging out if you've not heard that already. Um, and I think what I've learnt there is Stuart's just come to the realization that people deliberate over the names of things in order to find something appropriate. That's lovely though, isn't it? The Bicycle Shop Norwich and the Cookie Jar Leicester. Cookie Jar is great. I've been there loads. Very much looking forward to uh, to playing in Norwich at the Bicycle Shop. I don't know anything about it except it was recommended by my friend Helen, who's very switched on to uh, uh, cultural events in Norwich. Norwich is one of those... It's a bit Partridge theme today. I wonder if that's a massive pain if you're from Norwich. Do you, are you pleased that Partridge has put Norwich on the map or does it dog your every day because... Every signpost and shop nearby looks like it's deliberately partridge related. The point I was originally going to make is that Norwich seems to be one of those kind of, if you've not been there, you've got to go because it, it's one of those sort of um, cultural enclaves whereby it's so far away from, I don't know whether it's the the distance from other places, but there is some aspect of it which has got a really good underground countercultural kind of movement there's loads and loads of art there you know the way bristol's got all its graffiti norwich has got uh, i don't know quite what it's got but there's a uh, there's a good bit of wool there and some uh, some really excellent people doing uh, excellent excellent music and comedy and cultural stuff like that so the bicycle shop yes looking forward to those remember of course uh, to email me info at comedianscomedian.com with the subject line cavalry if you feel you could put up some posters in your place of work i'll be very happy to chuck those out to you and um, those will be going out in the next week so get in touch soon um and thank you for your donations no more to say on that for now thank you to those of you who are making regular 
uh, PayPal donations who are making recurring donations via PayPal or Moonclerk uh, or who are giving me little one-off goodies to say thanks for the show. Uh, I hope you're enjoying it. Uh, I was told off on uh, the iTunes reviews. You can go and look at it. <laughs> uh, if you search the iTunes reviews for the show by most recent, the penultimate one has got someone telling me off for asking for money and saying that he would rather I did advertising. An interesting idea. Um, I prefer to keep it busking for, for right now. And... Um, I'm just going with the weight of opinion. If you all complain, maybe I'll shut up. But maybe even then I won't. And then you'll uh, you'll all have complained and we'll all feel bad. I just... I'm so unused to getting uh, uh, criticism, not because I think I'm great, but because most of you lot are really nice, that whenever anyone criticises, I feel like coming back to it. And of course, you should never do that. It's, people are entirely... Uh, they're completely allowed to their opinion. Do you, do you remember entitled to their opinion? I shouldn't, I shouldn't involve myself in it. And this is me. I'm not someone who's getting the horrendous kind of death threats that people get on Twitter, that comedians get. You know, I, I, um, I, I don't court controversy in that kind of way. So the tiniest little bit of, uh, uh, of criticism, really, you go, oh God, if I, imagine those people, imagine what Susan Kalman talks about going through or, or other, I mean, I, I, off the top of my head, I can't think, but you know, we've had lots of comics on the show who have talked about how hard they have it, or Josie Long talking about, or Phil Jupiter's talking about the, the, the abuse they get on Twitter. This is by no means abuse. I have one tiny little mention in a negative way saying, I love the show, but, and, uh, and it's all I can fixate on. Isn't it a good job that these days my mental health is far stronger than it has ever been, and I can uh, spring back from it. Otherwise, I would just want to run away and hide. Anyway, all of that goes to say I don't want to sound uh, negative about your feedback. I really appreciate your feedback, and some of the best bits of my week are answering your emails where you're saying nice things about the show. So keep them coming in, uh, and if you would like to donate, you can do that at comedianscomedian.com. That's all of that stuff. I have one little shout-out for Dr. Stuart Higgins. Uh, I was on his podcast, The Scientists, Not the Science, uh, and you can find out uh, about that and download it from scinotsci.com. That's science in science. So S-C-I, not S-C-I dot com. The word not is part of the thing. I don't mean it. That was confusing, wasn't it? S-C-I-N-O-T-S-C-I dot com. Sign not sign. Dead easy. Dr. Stuart Higgins uh, doing some fascinating research into stuff and comedy forms part of that and podcasting forms part of that. So uh, it'd be very interesting to talk to that. He's a lovely bloke. Uh, and he sent me... He sent me uh, some sort of gift, which I have yet to collect. So thank you, Stuart. I look forward to that. Um, that's the lot. Let's get back to Jenna, shall we? This is Jenna Free. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Just to stay with this issue of likability. Like, you quite... <laughs> ah, I wish we could have, uh, have the, the visuals of that. Uh, the listener will just need to imagine uh, Jenna looking sassy in an incredibly dry way at the audience. <laughs> <laughs> um... Tell me about your attitude towards your audience and whether or not you want them to like you. Well, I mean, I never thought about it. <laughs> and maybe that's pro- probably part of the problem. But um, I do think, and this is because someone told this to me, so I don't know, I think there's likability in just like being true to yourself, whether that's like for better or for worse. And that's like the type of audience I hope to cultivate. That sounds like asshole-ish, but like, I don't know, like you can't control if people like you. And I guess that's something I've learned as I get older. Like, you know, you can't like, people are going to love you or hate you for whatever reason. You know, and I think as like women in comedy, like it might be a little bit, it's something on your minds a little bit earlier on. Cause like in my early twenties, like people just perceived me a certain way before I even opened my mouth. Like I remember doing a set in London at a comedy store at like 1am and right when I, they announced me going on stage, the whole front row just cleared out and went to get drinks. And like, those are things that I don't think guys like get like, um, you know, socialized to kind of like feel as much. Um, and, but now with the show, like I totally, you saw the show, like I kind of call that out and confront it like mm. about, you know, likability and stuff, which is fun. But yeah, I mean, I never really, I never thought about it until I had a manager be like, you're not likable. Like, I'm sorry, you're never going to make it. Is that, so someone said that to you? Yeah, right right before I got Letterman. So the good news is I didn't have to pay them 10% of my salary, you know. But um, yeah, no, I I totally, I had a manager drop me because I wasn't likable. Okay. So every time you win over an audience without pandering to them, presumably that's another, like internally you're thinking, ha. I don't know what I'm thinking, but now it's weird because, like, I'm, I'm like, so likable. Because, <laughs> like, I'm over 30, you know, and people are like, aw. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to, you mentioned Letterman. I want to talk about the Letterman stuff, sure, but also just, just because we're on the subject of uh, women and uh, women over the age of 30. You've got some brilliant stuff in your show. Some of my favorite stuff was about uh, women over 60 being invisible mm-hmm. and you pull loads and loads of really funny ideas out of that yeah. there's the, the idea that you know hey I'm not going to offend any I mean there's none here well how would we know you know and there's the, that kind of car crash joke I don't want to sort of murder the stuff it's not a joke it really happened but okay yeah I'm sorry I remember a thing about a car crash what was that yeah no uh, Caitlin not Caitlin but Bruce Jenner actually um, ran oh, over Jesus, a, sorry, yeah. a 69 year old woman uh, the joke is like in his defense maybe he didn't see her but 
the reality, and you have to get this, whatever. Uh, anyway, the reality is that, like, you know, Caitlin hasn't been prosecuted for that, which is interesting. Okay, let's not tape this. Anyway, um, what? In terms of trying to find... <laughs> In terms of trying to find the funny in that subject, what's the starting point for you with that? What's the kernel of the idea of, okay, women over 60 are culturally invisible and that pisses you off? So that's the starting point? Yeah, the of course. Oh, yeah. of course. Yeah, I'm not asking, it's actually like over 40. Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just the idea of like women being invisible, but being, being able to attack it and call it out, like gives like us power back. And I, I don't, I feel great. Like, and I talk about that in the show and I really mean it, but like, I'm like preparing for the future. Um, uh, but I do think when you talk about things that bother you and you can make them funny to people, like it, it takes power away from them or like the stink away from like aging, you know, like, and I think when you look at Hollywood and so many like women and now men too, just trying so hard to stay young, it's like, no, like there's beauty in aging. And I'm not just saying that in like a pandering way. Like if you really think about it, you know, and like now the show, now that my show is a show, even though I'm leaving Edinburgh, sorry, but like I call it back to like Clinton, you know, just the power. If like women over 60 are invisible, like who better to lead the country? You know what I mean? Like diplomatically, strategically, like just being able to eavesdrop on meetings. <laughs> if no one can see you, you know what I mean? Like there's that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think like thing, it starts with like that kernel of like frustration, like the, the response to Caitlyn Jenner on the cover of Vanity Fair. It's like, I, I support her, but it's also like, I don't relate to her and like, I want to talk about this. And, and it was really touchy and sensitive to talk about, but like it, and it takes a while to find like the right tone and the tone that like, if somebody criticizes you, you can own. I think that's the important thing, you know, mm. like, whether you talk about like trans issues or Israel or like, you know, reproductive rights or whatever to get to the point where your jokes are so bulletproof that like if somebody, if you get like the harshest critic, you know, like you can combat them with like, like you have such conviction in what you're saying that nobody can po- poke holes in it. And it just takes a long time to get to those issues. I mean, to get to that place on whatever issue you're talking about. So, so have you, in the earlier part of your writing, uh, your own stand-up, did you find that there were issues you tried to tackle that you didn't yet have those gears? You didn't, you didn't yet have the writing ability to make something unassailable? I, I think so, but I don't even know if it was a writing ability as much as, like, it's weird because now, like, I think it's, like, performance and delivery and, like prior like I would tell a dark joke deadpan and like I can't really do that but like if I tell the same joke but like with like a shoulder shrug or like a relatability or even like backstepping there's like something that could read as like not confident but to me it's just like I'm like trying to sell you on an idea and it's like I'm trying to be relatable because there is like a humanity and I know it's again gonna sound ridiculous but there's like you know at the end of the day like no matter what we think on any issue we're all people and there's that. And I think, like, the coolest thing about being a comedian is being able to be in a room and, like, connect with people, you yeah, know? And yeah. so that's, like, what I'm trying to do. So even if someone doesn't like what I'm saying, if I'm like, well, they might be like, okay, okay, I'll listen. That's, that's really interesting that you're, that you're really so... That's so Jewish. I'm just like, no. <laughs> that you're really physicalizing that, that something so subtle as, like, when you said a, a back step, just for the benefit of people who can't see you, you, you mean physically stepping backwards, like as you... Yeah, but I don't think de- that that's a bad thing, you know? Like- no, not at all. But I, I think that's so that's fascinating that a tiny change like that can, if compared to, you know, delivering it out front and deadpan, this is what I think, that can be too abrupt for people to get on board with. Well, and I think you it- can bring them with you. 
Oh, bringing them with you by backstepping or something? Yeah, yeah, or, or showing vulnerability, and even in a simpler way as taking a tiny step back. I mean, I hope so, but then some people might be like, and I'm literally thinking of one reviewer. <laughs> <laughs> he was like, she's like Sarah Silverman, but less confident. And I'm like, no. <laughs> I don't mind that because I love Sarah. But I also think it's like, <laughs> I mean, why do we have to just like, it's hard because if if you talk about scary things and you don't seem totally confident, then like people listening might get a, get scared. But it's like, what if it's okay to be scared? You know, like, why are you guys watching me trying to not feel scared? We should all feel scared. <laughs> An asteroid could hit us at any moment. <laughs> it's okay to feel scared and laugh at the same time. I don't think that those two feelings are mutually exclusive. That's actually, absolutely. I've never heard any comic say that before, but that, there's a real wisdom in that. Please don't drop the expensive mic. <laughs> but that idea of vulnerability, I think that's a really interesting dynamic in what you do because you're, the sort of adjectives people have been using in the reviews about you, the way you like to, the way they like to describe you is spiky and, do you know what I mean? That they're kind of like. Yeah, the worst is like, her persona of someone who doesn't care about like humanity. I'm like, wait, I'm doing a persona. (laughs) 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 That's what you got that I'm pretending to not care about people. And it's like, it's so interesting. Yeah. No, it's really interesting because I don't know how I read, but like, I do talk about Ebola and like, I, and like, I mention it and it's scary, but like, I also, because this isn't a, a comedy show, like when that whole thing happened, it was traumatic. And like, I talk about it in the show. There's like that, joke i'm like doing the parentheses whatever but like i also like had a fundraiser where i where i like raised fifteen thousand dollars for doctors without borders like i'm trying to like you know do the best i can but it's like should we not is it insensitive to talk about this stuff should we just ignore it and not do anything and not talk about it it's like i don't know why you know like i I think you can talk about anything if you are coming from a place of humanity even if it's like i don't know like i I try I, i could be wrong but i do try to like walk the walk like outside of comedy, you know, but it is when you talk about spiky things, you're just opening the floodgates for people to just like kind of weigh in. Hmm. I don't know. I maybe I'm just sensitive. Tell me, tell me about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Um, tell me, uh, tell me about Letterman. Tell me about the writing process. What kind of writing were you doing when you were writing for that show? Just throw spaghetti at a wall and see what sticks. I remember um, it was very interesting. It was an awesome first writing job. And I remember, like, the first joke that I got on. It was, like, my first week. My grandmother had just died. And uh, Dave had this, like, top ten. It was words of wisdom from Dave's mom, who was my grandma's age. And, like, um, I was writing jokes and jokes and jokes. And you're literally in a room for 12 hours, like, writing jokes and jokes. With with a group? How many people no, are in? alone. Alone in a room. for 12 hours. Yeah. So you chained to anything? No. That's- but, like, you know. And, I mean, it was a good job. Like, it, you know, I could pay my rent and everything in New York, which, like, you can't do anyway. Uh, um, but I remember, like, joke, 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 joke. And then I just, like, stopped. And I was like, what would my grandma say? And then, like, I got, like, four or five of the top ten on. And it was, like, it was like one of those things where at Letterman, like, your head's always on the chopping block. So, like, my first week getting, like, half of the, writing half of the top tens was, like, a big deal. It meant, like, I was going to stay for a quarter. Um but, like, I remember, like, him organically laughing, like, it was number five, which I think is, like, where he puts, like, his favorite joke or something. It's okay. never, like, the, but it was, like, Dave's mom, like, top ten words of wisdom, and she was just, like, number five, 
no one cares how you feel. <laughs> and it was like not a joke, but just a truism. And he just like laughed and it was so cute to see this like 84 year old woman say that. And then it was so that, that there were like moments of like, you know, wonderful moments there. But on a whole, it just, I mean, I got there at an interesting time. He was kind of checked out. It was almost like we would describe it as like weekend at Bernie's, but like, like you're just like doing comedy for like a dead man. Um, <laughs> Tell me about the. Well, he would if he were here. He'd be like, "Yeah, that's about right." Like, yeah. pretty much had checked out by the time I got there. Tell me about the 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 process you were using to write. You were writing to order. They'd go, "Okay, we need this subject. We need these subjects." Yeah, no, they would just give us assignments. Uh, we met in the morning with everybody, and then we'd like go to our little rooms and we just like write for twelve hours. Um, my process. I don't know. You're just, you know, the one thing that I actually, in terms of process that I use a lot more now that I think I was using before, I was definitely using it before Letterman was Twitter for better or for worse. Like I, and I say like, we all, we are all like one tweet away from getting fired. But at the same time, like to me, it's like a joke book that talks back to me. Mm-hmm. Like I write a lot of my jokes now on Twitter. Cause like, I don't really do open mics. Like I, I like, especially when you're writing or working on a show, you're just like, that's all you do. You don't have time to like hit the mics. So I'll use Twitter as like a joke book that talks back to me. And I think like, it's really good. If anyone is like an aspiring, like especially late night writer, like Twitter is amazing because you just write all your jokes on there. Now my Twitter feed's crazy. But when I was like trying to like prove that I could write, I just, it was like all jokes and like an agent or someone could just send it to like a head writer and they can just read all your jokes. And I have friends who have gotten – my friend Jen Statsky who started as a writer on Fallon. She got hired I think off of her Twitter feed because she's so funny. She's like one of the funniest Twitter feeds. Okay. And uh, yeah, I mean so writing for Letterman was a lot like that. If you're used to tweeting like just jokes and people are like, well, what if people steal your jokes? Anyone stealing jokes is like – I mean people – I don't know. That's never – they can't I, steal your output. They can't steal like yeah, the and it fact never comes down to like one up. joke, you know. Yeah. And like, especially for those late night shows, it's not about how funny you are. It's about how funny you are in a like a finite period of time, you know. So I always think, you know, it's good for like young comics to just like tweet really funny things, you know, and just like because if someone tweets something really funny, like I'll retweet it and like people will see it, and it's like it's you know. I, I, I know we didn't get into this, but everyone's always like, how do you get a writing job, at least in the States? And it's like, just like put your stuff out there and make it funny and mm. people will see it. Do you find you write in a different voice on Twitter? Unfortunately, no. I am just really myself and it's probably not helped my social life and probably just like, like if I have insomnia and I'm like reading a scary article like in The New Yorker, I'll just write about that for like a while. And like when the whole Ebola thing was happening before it came to the States, when people were like, Nobody in the States was freaking out yet, but like they were freaking out in Liberia, Sierra Leone and Guinea. And like I had been following Ebola, like the fucking Super Bowl since I was in sixth grade and seen, I saw outbreak in sixth grade. And then, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then there was like the outbreak in like Zaire, which is like the DRC. And so like Ebola had been on my radar ever since then. And so like in March, I was like, you guys, like we need to help them. We need to help people. And then uh, nobody cared until it came over to the States. But then once it came to the States, because I had been literally tweeting about it for like eight months, people like – I like. People were like rewarding my like neurotic, like I was like at Johnson and Johnson, why don't you donate just supplies to, like I was literally like trying to be an activist on Twitter and it got to this boiling point where like I was at a coffee shop in New York City and some guy came up to me and he was like, are you obsessed with Ebola? (laughs) 
And he was like, I am Bloody Do. Like, I follow you on Twitter. And I was like, oh my God. That was like the first time I've been recognized. Oh, wow. As the Ebola lady. Yeah. In your uh, Dustin Hoffman bright yellow hazmat. Yeah, but it wasn't like, my panic wasn't like we're all going to die. My panic was like people are dying and we need to be smarter about helping them. In the writer's room, when you get an assignment, what are you doing to try and unpack that assignment? And get, have you got kind of notes? Have you got like, because, you know, as a, as a stand-up, I guess a lot of stand-ups would have just a, a note-taking app on their phone. And every time something occurs to them or they saw something, they made an observation, they'd make a note. Now, I, I've never really done writing for or with other people like that. So I don't know what the what's the kind of... Yeah, with Letterman, I mean, with Letterman, it was weird. Like, it just wasn't the right fit. It wasn't the right show for me. So it was like very hard. But like, I remember like one joke that I got on that I got residuals for like two to three years after because he just loved it so much. Like Dave's comedy is very like A to B. So we would do the top tens, which were like tweets. And I did well with that. But then you had these like pre-taped sketches. And um, one was on Mardi Gras, which is Fat Tuesday. You guys, I don't know if you know what that is. Or you have that? Sorry, I know I sound like an asshole. But, That's okay. Um, we have the concept of Mardi Gras as a kind of carnival. Yeah, it's like a thing. carnival. So it was on Mardi Gras. Chris Christie was giving a speech on like um, gay marriage or anti-gay marriage, and I remember like looking at the calendar as I was waking up because we would like write before work and get up early, read the news, and try to make jokes off of that. And it was very uninspired, except for this moment. And I, uh, Dave, like loved fat jokes at the time. It's not like my thing, but. Chris, Chris, Chris Christie was like shitting on gay people and saying that they shouldn't get married. So I was like, fair game. So it was just this very easy joke where we cut to his press conference on Mardi Gras and someone's like, take it off. And he flashes everybody. And we had this guy who we would call in this like really nice obese guy who would do all the body double green screen stuff for Chris Christie. So we like called him in. <laughs> I'm you, sure that the listener could get this, the said No, if you Google, from, it's on YouTube. If you Google, like, Chris Christie, Mardi Gras Letterman, it was so well built. Like, it looks like Chris Christie's actually flashing a mob of people during a press conference. And Dave just, like, liked it so much. They just kept playing it and playing it and playing it and playing it. And I remember, like, having it, like, I just never knew what worked on that show. And I remember one time being like, what about, like, a mobile that, like, drops from the ceiling with, like, a Snickers bar? And Dave's, like, going on a rant. And then he just sees it, gets distracted, and, like, takes a Snickers bar and, like, eats it. And I was, like, being facetious. And they're like, oh, my God, that's brilliant. I was like, <laughs> what? And I remember, like, one of my first jokes that got cut that was my favorite was, like, it was right when, like, Saudi Arabian women were, like, granted the right to, like, run in elections or something. Or there was some, some I forget the actual news peg, but, like, it was, and then again, the sketches are very like A to B, meaning like they don't have too much thought that goes into them. They're, you're like in and out. But it was like Dave has this like quote unquote satellite television where he's like, you know, I saw like I heard this in the news and now they're already running elections. Like the competition's fierce. And then you just, the joke is you cut to an election. It's like two Saudi Arabian women, but you can't tell them apart because they're both in burkas. It was like a dumb <laughs> A to B joke that like worked. For an American audience, sorry guys. <laughs> guys are so much more multicultural. Um, and then it got cut at the last minute for like found footage of a guy getting hit in the nuts at a baseball game with like a fly ball. <laughs> so that was like the tone of the show and like yeah. what I was like trying to do there. So it just wasn't the right fit. I was there okay. a year. Um, I ended up at the Daily Show because Wyatt Sinak, who's been a friend and a mentor, he was like, you should come over here and be a field producer for the Daily Show. 
And I was like, I don't really want to be a producer. And he's like, no, like you're like a filmmaker for the show. John will like teach you how to like write and direct. And he did. And that's holy shit. So I so I ended up going over to the Daily Show after a year at Letterman. And so I, did you did you leave Letterman or did they did they not renew you? Whose decision was it to leave? It was mutual. Okay. <laughs> It was mutual. I, remember, I just think so, a job like that, I would imagine, would be hard to walk well, away from. Well, it was hard if, to walk away from, but it just fit. wasn't a good fit. I mean, it yeah. just wasn't a good fit. And, like, again, as you get older, you have more confidence in, like, your, you know, who you are. But, like, yeah, it just wasn't It just wasn't a good fit. I wasn't getting stuff on, but they were all really nice and lovely, and it just, like, you know. And then um, the Daily Show job. I mean, New York is a small community, and when you're doing stand-up, you just kind of know everything and, like, know the jobs that are around. What was your... What was the most satisfying moment of that in terms of getting what you wanted out there? Like the equivalent of that number the five. First the first satisfying list. moment, because there have been so many, to be totally honest. I mean, it really, the first moment it really clicked was, um, it was my second piece. I did a piece with Samantha B about women in the military. Um, and it was when there was a ban on women serving in combat. And I remember thinking like, this is a civil rights issue. Like women should be allowed to at least the word isn't audition, but like try out, <laughs> try out to be on the front lines. And like, I'm like, obviously like, I'm not like into war, but like, you know, women in the military are second class citizens and like lifting the ban on women in combat would at least lift a little bit of that stigma. It would help women with like, you know, getting promoted through the military. And, and, uh, I, you know, a lot of people in the department didn't really see it as a big of a deal as I did. So I fought for it and they were really cool. And they were like, okay, go, go ahead, like work on this piece. So Sam and I started to produce it. We shot half of it. And then Panetta, Leon Panetta lifted the ban on women serving in combat. So the actual news story changed. Like it went okay. 180 in the middle of production. Oh, okay. So we had a take that was like, you know, military, you're on the wrong side of history. And then the law actually changed and women were now like allowed to serve in combat and we pulled this like kind of like all nighter and we put this piece out and it was awesome. And it was just like, I, it was like working with the smartest people I'd ever worked with on like a news story that was like so hot. And we got the piece out that Monday. And so basically the joke was that like, you know, women in the military disrupt like bromance in combat zones. <laughs> and it just really, really worked. And even when I watch it now, like I get chills and uh, it was so cool to have like a point of view that was so strong. And so it was just, it was great. I mean, it was such a great piece and such a powerful piece and Sam nailed it. And uh, it was so like my tone too. And it was like that kind of like spot of like female comedy that like I was, I wasn't hired to do that. I was, I never felt like a token or anything, but it was like my sweet spot and uh, it just worked and John really liked it. And it was like the first moment where I was like, okay, now I know why I'm here. So, yeah, it was a great piece. And then I've had other pieces, like, I've gotten to do so many pieces on stuff that I care about that, you know, like, John was very uh, keen on us doing things that we cared about. Like, I did a piece with Michael Che about, like, the OxyContin epidemic that was, like, not funny. But we made it funny yeah. because, like, everybody at the show was just really, really smart and cared a lot about it. It was so cool. What did the, when you find something like that, like OxyContin, and you go, okay, what could, I, we, we're passionate about it. So the piece the was jokes? basically, I mean, so there are two counties in Northern California that were suing the pharmaceutical companies. In the way, the reason it was compelling to me because it kind of echoed the tobacco lawsuit to the 90s. And so the piece is kind of like... Like how the joke was basically how like, you know, pharmaceutical companies, it's not like they're drug dealers or it's not like they're like the cartels. Oh, they are? Fuck. Um, and we actually got a guy who used to work for the FDA uh, to kind of 
the I mean, this is so long-winded, but basically, like, a lot of the pharmaceutical companies are pushing these drugs on people with chronic pain. And these drugs are very similar to heroin. And if you give them to somebody with, like, a, acute pain, it's like or, like, end-of-life care, it's, like, very helpful. Mm. But if you give it to somebody who's, like, 40 years old with back pain that's not going to go away it's just giving them another addiction and uh, as a result like in the states we have a huge heroin and opioid abuse blah 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 blah. but we got somebody who used to work for the fda who works for like a private consultancy to come on our show and defend the drugs and defend the drugs being used specifically for chronic pain and then the big payoff at the end is che being like yeah and it's not like anyone's paying you to say that oh they are Fuck. And so, yeah. like, even to just get that, it's like the piece may not be, like, LOL, but it it's impactful. And, like, again, we don't want to fuck him over, but, like, he came on the show and, like, you know, we're calling him out. And there, there there's a lot. I mean, that's very satisfying to be able to do that in a comedic way, but you really have to have conviction. And the cool thing about The Daily Show is, like, everybody around us was so collaborative and everybody was so smart that if you're going to, like, you know, burn, like – I didn't want to ruin careers, but I got a guy fired. A guy was fired for being in a field piece of mine. And even after he was in the piece, he was like, like, I don't regret what I said, you know, and which is the best. And he's like, they treated me well. They didn't take me out of context. But like, you just have to be so careful and smart about how you go about doing things and responsible. And that was like the coolest thing about the show. Like it, it, the cachet to me and the allure of the daily show to me was that it had integrity and that it was trusted. So even if you're a comedy show, if if you, everyone is working together really hard to to be smart and and say the right thing, and I know that sounds still ambiguous, but I mean, it's worthwhile to be a part of that. Do you find that? You, I, I speak to some political comics. There are very few um, in the UK, um, or maybe necessarily people who want to kind of identify themselves as political. I think there's a very small kind of percentage of of the comedy landscape. Um, and I often am interested in whether or not they think they can use comedy to affect change. And I suppose for something like working on The Daily Show, that feels like it's actually a tangible possibility. You can affect cultural change. If you can make a, a clip that's funny enough, that goes viral enough, that, you know, it could really make a difference. Did you feel like? Well, now it's almost scary in the difference that it does make. If you look at Oliver's show, I mean, yeah. like, you look at a piece he puts out and then, like, it's... I mean, policies are changing. And the same thing with us. I remember putting out a piece on the minimum wage, a piece on fracking. And then like later that week, the White House puts out a statement like, like calling for the reduction of methane emissions and fracking wells. And you're like, wait a minute. Like who's running this place? Like, yeah. <laughs> why are you guys listening to political? Like, and I, I do feel like comedians, you know, when they're good, I mean, they're great. And you look at it like President Obama was on Marin's podcast. He's yeah. on Funny or Die. He's coming on the Daily Show. And it's like, it's cool, but it's also scary because comedians don't sign up to be politicians, but politicians now, for whatever reason, are like leaning towards comedians to some degree uh, yeah. to change policy. And I don't know, you know, I don't know what it's going to look like 10 to 15 years from now, but there's like an incredible responsibility that some people like Oliver and John Stewart, like, you know, are rising to a rose to the occasion, but it's also, it's like, Politicians, can you just like do your jobs? <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, the same way, certainly in the UK, I remember about kind of eight years ago, there seemed to be a huge glut of actors doing a load of open mics so they could put comedy on their CV. Just wondering whether like the politician 15 years from now is going to have to bash the open mic circuit for two or three years. Well, I think, <laughs> I mean, there's power in comedy. And if you're listening and you're thinking of doing that, don't do that. I think the key thread about good comedy is that it's relatable. 
And that, like what we were talking about earlier. And like, what do politicians want to be? Relatable. They want to be likable. And so like, that is the allure of like the comedian. Like they have that likability and the relatability. Um, but you know, it's, it's earned and it takes like 25 years to be a good comic, you know, like. Can I ask, when you are writing your stand up, are you putting in, what kind of work are you putting in, like, com- in comparison to the, the 12 hour days for working on a TV show? Well, when I'm writing my stand up, it's at the fringe. Um. <laughs> so you've been, you've been taking notes on and then, or sometimes. I mean, I wrote then... the show here. Like, this show that I have now, it took me two weeks and I have it, but it's, it, like, I, li- like, I showed up basically with 30 minutes of stand-up and then like 20 minutes of like spoken word and then it now is like about an hour of like a kind of show-ish okay and would you do it again did it work well enough that you'd go i'll come back here and i'll use that if i come back i want to do a totally different thing because all my jokes are in the reviews so i'll have to (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's what i meant though but for like in order to write your next hour would you kind of think whenever that might be would you go okay i mean if i'm to write another hour i'll come back here like i the problem the reason i wrote it here is because i haven't been touring like i haven't in five years i literally haven't done an hour so um yeah i haven't like been able to just do an hour of comedy so it was it was just kind of getting my this festival for me was like getting my feet wet again just doing stand-up and performing every night and you were doing so you had some of the as you called the spoken word elements where you you've got important things you've got things you want to say you've got attitudes but not necessarily jokes you're doing them on stage one night and then working on them are you are you typing you writing out longhand well i I recorded all my sets um, and so I recorded my sets and then like, you know, I'll listen to the joke or like my room was like a 60 person room and the show sold out. But like it totally, I mean, I remember like, like I had like 10 German people in the audience and I make jokes about German people, but then they like weirdly masochistically loved it. And then like, I was, <laughs> I was like at a coffee shop the next day and like four Germans came in and they're like, we love y'all jokes, Yana. And it's like, don't, <laughs> don't make this like some feel of like philosemitic like fetishy thing but i'm like sure i'll take it but um yeah i mean i'll i to answer your question again just uh recording my set listening to the jokes and like you know i write when i'm on stage so kind of uh taping tape recording writing listening and trying to to rework things combined with twitter that's how i write at the moment my last question, Jenna, and you can interpret this however you like. Uh, this is yes. a, a standard final question for the podcast. Uh, what would you have on your comedy gravestone? Oh, um, she died as she lived underground. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Jenna Friedman. <laughs> So Jenna Friedman there, just a really fascinating interview. Loads and loads of, uh, of great stuff in there. Um, so we've got some far more recent ones coming up uh, from next week. I forget who we're starting with. It might well be Nathan Caton. Uh, I have been doing some secret doings on YouTube. You're going to see some changes to the, uh, the ComComPod YouTube site, which is youtube.com uh, forward slash ComComPod. And uh, you'll see some new stuff coming out there. Not quite yet. It's all sort of on there and, and currently, you know, unlisted or private or whatever the word is. Um, but I have been tearing my hair out trying to learn to use iMovie. So that concludes the podcast. Thanks for your uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for sharing it with your friends and giving me nice reviews on iTunes and telling me if I've made a difference to your life, sending me emails and occasionally donating. Thank you uh, to all of you for all of that. And um, uh, that concludes the show for anyone that doesn't want to hang around for the waffle.
and now the waffle. So, um, is it a waffle or a ramble? I don't know. I think, I think it's like nutrition and diet, nutritionist and dietitian. One of them is a contested term. The other is real. I think, uh, it's probably waffle. Two things I wanted to talk about, um, just quickly. We're very nearly in, in sort of pregnancy lockdown now. Uh, I've got one final gig tonight. Um, uh, zipping out and back and then when i get home round about midnight or 20 past midnight tonight i'm officially in so i'm barricading the doors and waiting around for this baby to turn up which is going to be great so i was saying what i've been, i'll tell you one thing about some material that i've been doing and i'll tell you one thing now about this is okay <laughs> you know you shouldn't you shouldn't feed the trolls we all know that and the trolls can sometimes be one's own friends so if you put a what happened was I put a thing on Facebook saying, are any of you adept at iMovie? And uh, 10 or 11 people got back to it, eight or nine of whom were being sarcastic. I've only got myself to blame. You should never ask your friends for help. But um, the amount of people who rather than like all I wanted was to what I wanted was for someone to say, yes. I'm good at it. And two or three people did say this. I'm very grateful to them. Yes, I'm good at it. I can answer some questions so that when I get stuck into stuff, I find it hard to learn from videos or from from written stuff. I just thought it'd be good to have someone talk me through a thing over the phone. I'm not complaining for one moment that people I mean, the funniest comment was my friend Hutch, who at the very top said, I'm not. If that helps. Brilliant. Because it was funny. But underneath it, three or four other people said or more than that, said things like it's easy. Oh, oh, great. Oh, thanks. Thanks. I'm so glad it's easy. And um, how is that supposed to help? And the, I'm not complaining about them, obviously. I was, I was surprised by how negative I felt towards them. Um, but what I'm, what I'm interested in is my own feelings of sort of impotent rage. I was rageful for just a moment. I was like, what, how, what the fuck? How is that supposed to help? Telling me that iMovie is, hey, Stu, it's intuitive. Just get stuck in. No, no, that's not, that's not how it works. And, and it, there's something about, now I'm not complaining about the individuals. Obviously, on an individual case by case basis, people just fucking write shit on your Facebook page. Of course they do. That's fine. I'm sure I've made sarky comments on other people's. But I suppose what I mean is it's the, it's a very specific thing. It's me not being able to respond. There was no possible comeback to that. Any possible, I've always thought I'd do very badly in prison. I, uh, I had no comeback because there was nothing I could say that wouldn't let on how frustrated I was. You couldn't just go, thanks. Do you know what I mean? Because I wanted certain of these people to know how infuriated I was with this, with these comments. And, and by now, Jesus Christ, this is, the, the, I mean, talk about first world problems or first Joel problems. If you listen uh, to the comedy score, um, I am aware of what a tiny thing it is. It's so, so tiny. But I was so angry. And I couldn't... There was no outlet for it. There was no release valve apart from this, apart from you, poor poor listener. Um, I just didn't know how to come back. Because it was anything I thought of would have been overly mannered or kind of trite or it would just reveal how annoyed I was and you can't reveal how annoyed you were so you just have to not answer so I think I'm gonna just delete the thread a couple of people said yes I'm good I'll give you a hand then someone who's a really close friend of mine said 
oh, I don't want to add to the people who are saying it's easy. But it really is easy. And I, like, I thank you. If that's meant to be encouraging, I appreciate it. But obviously what it sounds like is this sort of awful patronising kind of like they none no, very few of them asked what do you need what specifically are you doing if if what i want to do is work out exactly why a little blue bar will only appear to be high lit under certain conditions that is not that cannot be answered by someone going oh it's easy so what is it that makes people want to do that such that they can you know, why would you put that? Is that just, that's, that's like putting a comment under someone's stage as they go, I'm asking for help. And you put a comment saying, oh, well, you don't need any. And you go, well, who, how does that serve you? How does that serve me? Oh, God. So anyway, I, I, you know, I, of course, I, of course, they're all my friends and I, I love them to varying degrees. But I was really taken aback, not by the event itself at all, but by how impotent I was in my response. I just didn't know what to do. I couldn't do anything. God forbid I ever have to engage with the real world in any meaningful way. Oh dear. I've got this, I've got this little guy on the way. And, um, I, I, we had a practice baby over the weekend. Uh, some friends of ours came over, one of whom had a very new baby, five months old. He's an absolute legend. And I took him out and uh, we all sort of went out for a walk and I was like, oh, I've got this. So I was doing the, the buggy stuff. We, we kind of test ran a lot of our baby stuff. And um, I went out for a walk and I was pushing the baby in the buggy and he was crying and I was singing to him and he stopped crying. And I was then I realised actually he preferred, I was singing, I like to sing a lot of They Might Be Giants. Those are my go-to little ditties as I wander around the house. Um and I realised that he's actually, he was preferring just little, you know, if you just kind of go ba-boo-ba-ba instead of the things, then he, he quite likes it and he giggles. And um, I found myself remembering a piece of material that Alan Cochran did years ago when he first became a dad about how when you push your baby in a pram through a park, all your life is... Now, I think his line, I'll butcher it, I'm sure, but he had a line about, like, all I'm doing is wondering whether I could kill a dog if I had to. <laughs> and that's exactly what I did. I felt like I was fulfilling some sort of observational... Um, I don't know. I don't know what the word is. But, you know, he, he kind of made this... this uh, 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 what's the word? A, uh, it's like a prophecy. I was fulfilling the prophecy. Um, and it's just funny the way... It, it really interested me the way that stand-up comedy has that effect on our lives. Like, I cannot now wash myself in a shower without remembering the Seinfeld bit about the order in which he washes himself in the shower. I've mentioned that on the, on the podcast before, um, because that really was such a good example to me of something I'd noticed but not noticed I'd noticed. And, um, and I just wonder how much of my day-to-day expectations of the world, how much of the, the, the processes by which I get to grips with the world are informed by bits and pieces of other people's comedy routines. I don't know if you, some of you'll be writers, some of you won't, but if you, when you write your stuff, do you ever feel that there's an, an, a pre-existing joke or a pre-existing idea which nails the subject so hard, so well, that you can't think of anything else around that subject? Like if so-and-so has got a brilliant bit on lolly sticks, you go, oh, I'm going to write some jokes about lolly sticks. You just, you can't because you feel like, oh, that's been done. I don't know. I don't know what I'm saying. But I, it was very enjoyable. So I'm very thankful to the practice baby. And, um, 
And uh, yeah, I uh, I wonder what other things there are in your lives. You, tweet me if you like. I've noticed a couple of you mentioned on Twitter. It's at ComComPod, as I'm sure you know. A couple of you mentioned on Twitter that you'd been listening to uh, the waffle at the end and said encouraging things. I'm sure some of you can feel free to slag me off, and I will try to deal with that in my own impotently rageful fashion. Um, but uh, are there are there particular routines? Send me a tweet and let me know um, which which bits of comedy stick in your mind from other people or which bits have you noticed that you can't do a thing without thinking of a particular routine or a particular joke that might be interesting last little thing i was telling you about the uh, the the airbnb bit recently and i wanted there was another little bit i wanted to tell you about um yes that's got the beginnings of a of a thing i'm just looking at my uh, my bit of paper on the wall where did i gig most recently i was in um a dis- the Discovery Centre, it must have been Winchester, it was Winchester Discovery Centre last Friday night. And I've got a joke about London and just a strand of the joke is uh, the fact that it's got four airports, five if you include Luton, which no one does. That's kind of become a, uh, a tweak on the end of a joke. And someone shouted, South End. And I went, you what, mate? And he said, uh, South End, it's technically a London airport. And me being me, rather than go, great, and then get a laugh at his expense and then move on. And this was right. I had so much rhythm. This was like minute 18 of a 20-minute headlining set. I just ended up instead explaining to him, though that won't work, mate. That, that won't work as a joke because not enough people know. I, the, the end of that, that it's not a joke itself, it's a topper. The topper on the joke can't be... London with its five airports, six if you count South End. It's stupid. It doesn't work. Not enough people know it. And then I did a gig on uh, on Saturday night at the Bath Comedia, and I just I got to that bit and I thought I'll chuck that in. I'll see if it works anyway. Of course it didn't. I'm an idiot. That's all for now. Um, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the the waffle. If you did, and um, we'll be back next week with more great stuff. I I've got Seymour Mace in the can. I'm not going to release him next week, but I will soon. Uh, that was a belter. We've got Abigailia. We've got uh, Tanya Edwards. Uh, and I'm who am I meeting who am I meeting I put someone in at the weekend oh they're good but I'm going to keep it to myself that'll do me ta-da even on a budget quality is non-negotiable that's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.